With you this morning, please turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 3. No surprises there, right, congregation? Ephesians chapter 3. We're working on verses 14 through 20. And we're working on the fullness of God. Last week we spoke about uh, the power of the Spirit. This week we'll speak about the, prim- uh, the presence of Christ uh, in our hearts. But we'll also go on to touch basis on the rest of this passage this morning. Um, this is a fascinating passage and it sets up at the end of chapter 3, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that is Christian living in this world, uh, that it is Spirit-empowered. And that it is through the presence of Christ and living beyond really our understanding. In this uh, 18th verse, it says that we will come to know uh, the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. And for us to live as Christians in this world, we're going to need to grasp that truth this morning, okay? Because there's going to be some things we can't understand, uh, but we still want the presence of Christ and to experience the fullness of his love. So let's read these. Let's have a short moment of prayer and get on for the next two hours. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before these words, we tremble at the depth of the beauty to know a love that surpasses knowledge, to understand the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width, and all the fullness of your being, of who you are. What a task we have to tackle this this morning. Father, my prayer is always that as your people set to be nourished in your word this morning, that you'll work, that you'll go above my simple words and understandings and empower them with the work of the Spirit in their lives this morning. Empower them, empower this truth in their hearts. Help them to live, to have hope to live with purpose and meaning, to live and go after everything that is true, good, and beautiful in this life with abandon to passionately pursue your Son, their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. That's Paul's prayer for us and the church at Ephesus and my prayer for them this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. The question that I'm going to leave you with this morning that I want to answer in the next two hours, I keep saying that like it happens, it doesn't often. How do we experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And 
if you have a good answer for that this morning, I would just allow you to pop up and say this morning. How do we experience the love of Christ? That's rhetorical, by the way. How do we experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And beloved, I don't think we think about this enough, but I want to answer that for you this morning because the scripture tells us the truth of that question this morning. And it's something that we're going to deal with in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that I got here on June 1st, and it was very shortly after that we started in the book of Ephesians. So we're about to make June 1st again, 2023, and we've been working in Ephesians for going on a year, and we're just halfway through. We're not even halfway through yet. So we'll probably be working on this second portion a bit longer than even that year because there's so much truth to know about what it means to understand and understand the love of Christ so that it surpasses knowledge. Of course, your knowledge, human knowledge, not his knowledge. But it's in this passage that we begin this ascent, this precipice that we stand on and look out upon these glorious truths of the book of Ephesians. They're massive. Um, they're life-changing. Uh, they will, and I hope that you experience this this morning, uh, put a notion in your heart that no other thing can put in there. So as this passage matures in our study this week, and please don't misunderstand, if, if, if it's your first visit here, we, each week kind of builds on the previous week, but you can catch up, you can get right in with us here as we march through the scriptures, because this is the most valuable way for a Christian to understand who God is. You can't fear God you don't know, uh, and you can't know God unless you know his truth. So we go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through these books and mine these rich truths because it's in these truths that we find living. And this week then is a maturing of our understanding of how Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers. He's praying for them to experience all the riches of the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God, all the love that surpasses understanding, as you see there, and all the fullness of God, the complete full, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the fullness of God. And so it's important that we set every week just a brief view of the context here. We begin this in this passage uh, in verses 14 and 15. You see it there. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Paul goes to pray for Christians, for the church. And he says in verse 15, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's important to catch that because he's bowing his knees for believers. He prostrates himself before the Father, the namesake of every one of the believers, his children who account for his family members, not only uh, in heaven, uh, uh, but here left on earth. And quite simply, beloved, that is the church as we've, uh, we've looked at in the past. The church is in two differing states here that Paul calls it. And you have the family in heaven, and that is the church triumphant. They're already there. They've won the prize. They're face to face with Jesus. But beloved, we set through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are engaged with them this morning at all the worship that takes place at the throne of God. Do you understand that through the Spirit's work, we are there with them and we are one holy Catholic church, little c, not big c, Catholic church, one holy Catholic church. So you have the church triumphant there with the Father this morning and you have the church militant who is left here on the earth, but we are in no different position because it's God's promises that promise us that we will be the church triumphant, so it's as good as done. The fight is over for church triumphant because they attend the throne of God and they await the second coming and the resurrected bodies so that they would live on the new heavens and the new earth eternally. And we wait for that too, but while we wait, we fight 
as the church militant. That is the church that is left here in this place. And we found out that the name pertains to spiritual warfare, not fighting in like a physical battle against flesh or blood, but it's a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons, as Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have a, a divine power to destroy strongholds. And those strongholds we've talked extensively about are the lies of Satan. Satan, our enemy, has no omnipotence. He has no, he's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He only has the leash that the Lord gives him. And we destroy those strongholds that he creates by destroying the lies that he creates. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, that is raised against the knowledge of God and take every that thought captive to obey Christ. And that is Christian living in this place. And that is Paul's final admonition, of course, in the book of Ephesians. If you see it there in chapter 6, it begins in verse 10. He ends this whole book by saying, finally... Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't hate the person, right? We hate what drives the person. But against the, uh, the rulers and against the authorities and the cosmic powers in this present darkness. That's the church militant. That's what we're doing when we stand up for the truth. That's what we're doing when we live against the lies and the deceptions of the enemy. And the church has not taken their position serious, and the state of our living is the result of that complacency. So I can't allow the church that I stand in the pulpit of not to understand these things. We impart ourselves as the church militant in this spiritual battle. It started in the Garden of Eden. Those lies began then. Whenever the fruit looked good, it was desired to make one wise. It must have tasted good because nowhere does it say they spit that fruit out. But Eve was standing there and Satan tempted her and he said what he still says today. Yea, hath God said. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat that fruit? And she ate. And she gave to her husband and he did eat. Yesterday we were, uh, uh, me and a group of guys go into uh, Center City, Philadelphia to the Planned Parenthood there at 1144 Locust. And you see the spiritual battle at the depth of it. That Planned Parenthood, I don't know whether you know it or not, kills 4,000 children a year in abortion. Just around the corner and up the street is a women's clinic that kills 9,000 a year. So we stand there and we challenge people with the gospel. We offer help to women who believe they have no hope. But the lies are as thick as thieves there. Men are inner cities lost. Just standing and talking, I probably talked to about 100 people in three hours yesterday, just standing and talk to people that are deceived by lies. I want them to know the truth. That's why I go. But they are deceived by the lies of Satan to live their lives in sin. So how do we do that? And the answer to that is the basis for the answer to how we experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and the fullness of God. Stay with me here because we're going to fulfill this answer in an illustration at the end of the sermon. The answer to these questions and how we stand against the enemy's lies is the same answer to how we surpass, to how we experience the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and the fullness of God. 
So Paul's prayer goes on to petition the Father to give us spiritual strength. You see it there in verse 16. He says this, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And we spend a lot of time in that verse because I think Paul uses this Trinitarian formula and he starts to talk about the work of the spirit uh, for a reason, because it's there that we're strengthened. Paul's prayer goes to the petition of the Father so that we're strengthened. And it is the spirit that gives us the truth. That is that you and I, beloved, that we as the church would know the truth, live the truth, and speak the truth. And that's what he's getting ready to challenge us to do. You see it there in four one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Wow. You walk in a manner worthy of what the gospel's done for you. That's a tall order. So we need to live in the truth, know the truth, live the truth, and speak to the truth, just like we did yesterday. And it's at this precipice that the rest of the book of Ephesians is seen. It is at this ledge we look out over and we need the Holy Spirit to enable us to live the life that God wants us to live. In our struggle as the church militant, we need the Holy Spirit to create the unity. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the truth so that we can live out the truth and speak the truth by those who are caught in lies. We do most of that by our living, right? Living as husband and wife is how we make the truth known in this world. Living as a husband who loves his wife like Christ loved the church. And a wife respecting and submitting to her husband in this world is, uh, becomes every day uh, a more and more of an exception and more and more of a thing that only God's people do. Or how about the unity that we display as a church? Or how about the way we train up our children differently from the children of the world and the way they should go and in the knowledge of God first? In my research of public school system, over and over again, I find one thing, that every teacher and every administrator, if you ask them what they are doing, they are preparing a child for the world. Christian education first prepares the child for God. So there's a huge difference there in how we prepare and train our children and how we live this life. And this is where we come to verse 17. And in fact, it's, it's the spring forward of verse 17 is how we'll go further to understand the rest of this. The spirit indwelling is the beginning in verse 16. We are saved and we become to know God's truth and the spirit resides in us. And then we experience the presence of Christ, the righteousness of God, the, sa the salvation that God has for us. And this is where we come to verse 17. Let's read it together. So that Christ may, well, go back and get 16, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit. And that word power, don't ever forget, is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. That's the power. Through this power, through his spirit in your inner being. That is the inner man, the very fabric if you are, down deep rooted in your soul and your psyche. That those promises are so embedded that it creates power in your soul. That whenever the physical comes, whenever the threats come, whenever the outside world comes in, that you have power down deep inside of you that's there, that you dwell, that, that you stand on whenever the time is the toughest. And then he gives us verse 17, and this is our springboard here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's verse 17. In fact, as we go further this week, there's just, then there's just one verse. And how important it is that we live in the Spirit. And this truth undergirds all the rest of the book, as I said. And that, in doing so, we are provided the presence and the fellowship of Christ in our very own hearts. It says in verse 17 that he dwells in our hearts through faith. Notice it does not say dwells in our minds through our intellectual abilities. But he dwells in our hearts through faith. That means that it's something that we cannot, uh, and that's why the word knowledge is going to come up here later, that we cannot experience the fullness of Christ, the love that he has, uh, that surpasses knowledge until we understand that this is a heart issue more than it is a knowledge issue. Because knowledge tends to bring in an experience in this world. So it's a heart and it's a faith issue that takes you further because knowledge and experience just pulls you closer to this world and the things of this world. So he, he dwells in our hearts through faith. And it's in that fellowship and presence we would then experience his love for us so that you would be rooted and grounded in that love. And there's kind of two levels of this love that we experience. First, when Christ saves us, we experience the love of God that saw our sins, right? Our dirty, filthy failures, our sins, our cheating, all those things that we are before God, and he sent his son to die for us. That's one level of love as we understand that, and the Spirit works in our lives, and our hearts are changed, and we understand the love of God, right? We're rooted and grounded in that. But then there's a second level of love that I want you to experience. I want every person in here to experience this morning. And if you don't grab a hold of that in your heart through faith because of the presence of Christ, you'll push that away and you'll be, uh, you'll never reach that level of experiencing all the fullness of God. It's going to take a minute to work all this out, but we will. That is that when we are saved, we begin to understand the great love of God for us. This is the gospel. Listen to me, beloved. I, I, I preached it over and over again uh, Saturday, it is that we could not fulfill God's law. And, it, and, and there's a great way to do that. And people I walk up to often, I ask them, I said, do you know if you're going to heaven? And they look at me and they go, I hope so. <laughs> oh my goodness. Is that all you got? I hope so. The most important question in your life and you've got, I, I don't, of course I don't say that to them, but that's, that, they haven't thought about it, have they? I hope so. And then I look at them and I said, well, you know, there's an objective standard, right? There's an objective standard by which we can judge if we're going to heaven or not. And I said, it's, it's God's Ten Commandments. And I, and I get all joyous about this because I love this part. And I look right at him and I said, have you ever told a lie? Oh my gosh, yes, I have. Like every other person in the world, we've told lies. Have you ever stolen something? Well, yes, I've done that too. So have I. I can agree with them. And I said, so has everybody that's ever lived in this world. I said, Jesus says that to look at a woman or a man in lust and is to commit adultery with that man or woman. Have you ever done that? And sheepishly, everybody has to agree to that. And I look at him and I said, well, then if God is just, and these are the standards by which he holds you, how good are you really? Didn't you tell me that we've all failed? We have all failed. Here's where that first mention of love comes in. Jesus never failed. Jesus came to this world and he lived and he was tempted with every sin that we were tempted with, yet he remained sinless. And then he willingly went to the cross and died in our behalf. And it's through faith in what Jesus has done you can be saved. Man, that's good news. 
That's good news. I want everybody to know that. This is the love, right? This is what God calls us to. This is the gospel. This is the love as Christ dwells in our hearts, we begin to be rooted and grounded. But there's more because the love we experience of Christ is given in a matter of degrees. Go deeper on dwelling here because it's in this dwelling uh, that we, we understand the victory of that. This is not just a momentary dwelling. This is not a dwelling like you and I would be on vacation and stay in a rental home for a week. But this is Christ taking up residence in our hearts and in our lives. And the sad truth is that most Christians who profess Christ, they live such worldly lives that we wonder if they've even truly experienced Christ and rebirth. But true conversion, this is the happy thought, true conversion doesn't satisfy itself at these shallow levels because the Spirit will always drive you deeper. Your presence here to hear this sermon this morning is evidence of that. If you're saved, you consider yourself a child of God. The Spirit has brought you here this morning to hear this very message that will pull you deeper into that love. And that is maturity. And Paul is praying, drive them deeper. And it is the basis for all of any pastor's prayer, any good pastor, for his congregation. And it's for my family and for every counseling session that I hold. Every one of the people I met on Saturday and everybody I come in contact that will listen to me for just a few minutes is that they would be driven deeper. That they would experience verses 18 and 19. That they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And your question should be sitting there looking up at me this morning. Pastor, how do I do that? How do I go from those first mentions of being rooted and grounded in, in my salvation into a love that passes understanding? I'm glad you ask. <laughs> I'm glad you ask. You've got to become like a child. That's the simple answer. Verse 17, it says that Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. So as I said earlier, it's not an intellectual pursuit. Though Christianity is not dumbed down because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. Uh, I said earlier that our public school systems prepare a child for the world. That leaves them woefully short because they will stand before God. But if you prepare a child for God, They'll know everything else they ever need to, to, to live and, and, and move and have their being in this world. Right? So Christianity is not a dumbed-down religion. That's a lie of the enemy. It is the religion that understands perfectly reality because God created everything. So it is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear of Darwin. Not the fear of Freud. Not the fear of Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, all the great philosophers of all time. It's not the fear of them that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of God. And because it's not an earthly wisdom that brings you to the cross, to Christ, or to salvation. And this is key because if we use earthly means to understand spiritual things, we will never fully understand the spiritual things. Remember I told you we've got to be childlike. From a human perspective, the cross is foolishness. Just turn back a couple pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just want to read a couple verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 
writing. For the word of the cross is folly. That's the Greek word morose, where we get the English word moronic. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul goes then on to mock the world's wisdom by saying, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the, uh, for sense in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. All of the world's wisdom will not attain you to God, but it is through the foolish preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, because that is where you encounter your sin and a holy God. And that is where the Spirit changes your heart so it can empower you in the inner man so that Christ's presence can live within you. And that, beloved, is the beginning of wisdom. And only that. The things of this world push away the things of God. And especially in Christians, stop it. Stop it. Stop allowing the things of the world to rob you of the experience It's not a wisdom of this age. We're going to learn that more. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians because we'll be in chapter 2 as well. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is the simplicity of it. Turn like children or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like a child. And most of you have children and you remember your children. You remember when they looked at you and they trusted you? They believed in you before they got out and understood and experienced the world, right? Everything you said was gospel. They believed that you were their hero, that you were never going to let them down, that every need they had would be perfectly met, that you would never let them fall. They'd stand at the side of that pool and you'd say, come on, son, and he would just flop in there like I was always going to be there, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And you look back at their sweet little innocent faces and you go, wow, boy, they got a lot to learn. Right? Because you know how big and bad the world is. And you know how difficult it is to provide for that child. And you know the bad things that are coming that they're going to experience. And you say, everything's going to be all right. Daddy's here. (laughs) And you wonder how you're going to make it all right. And it is there, beloved, in that childlike faith, we're called to have that. Not an intellectual pursuit, not a worldly possessing of these truths, but there in that childlike faith we understand and become rooted in the love of Christ. But in trusting like a child, we move to the next level of experience, a love that surpasses knowledge. Listen closely. I'll illustrate this at the end. It is there understanding that childlike faith that we move from the first feelings of love that God has for us to experiencing a love that surpasses knowledge. Just stop and think about that for a moment. That is what your child did. They didn't have the knowledge of the world and all its difficulties, and they just trusted and had faith that you would supply all of their needs. And that is the beginning of love that surpasses knowledge. And how we experience that with God is to place that same childlike faith in him. Even when we don't have the knowledge of how he might deliver us, we must place our childlike faith in him because he will never not deliver us. 
He will never look back at his children and wonder how he's going to take care of their needs like you and I do, beloved. Do you see the difference? You see the difference. And what does that mean? Well, hold on to that thought because, I'm, like I said, I'm going to illustrate that in just a minute. We need to have childlike faith but with adult-sized proportions. Okay? It's not having childlike faith that we're going to get to go to pizza, get pizza this afternoon. We need to go from a childlike faith, or we need to have a childlike faith, but with adult-sized proportions. Adult-sized proportions. What does that mean? This is where we move from being rooted and grounded at salvation to experiencing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It means that we need something to carry us past what this physical world is teaching us. It, need, it means that we need something that carries us past the knowledge that we have of the present that causes us fear. Because when it's, we look at the human knowledge of the present, we get all fearful and believe God's not going to deliver us. And that's when we try to come in and do things ourselves. No, God, I got this. I'll handle it. And that's what quenches and grieves the spirit. That's what stops you from experiencing the full-on fullness of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Stay with me. And the only way that we can do this is to be empowered by the Spirit. And that's why Paul begins in verse 16 with the Spirit. Again, the focus is not the physical, but the spiritual. The physical reality, if our children understood it, would make them question us. Right? If they, when, when every one of them did. When my children grew up, they go, oh, you, Dad, how did you do that, Right? You're not going to be able to do this. They quit asking sometimes because they believe our resources are limited. Do you see how we act like children before God in that manner? We're supposed to have that childlike faith but have it in adult-sized proportions and believe through faith because that's where Christ resides His presence is. Through faith, we're supposed to say and, and act and do as if we believe like that little child does about his parent, except it's us, adults, before a holy God. The Spirit gives us eyes then to see past the physical the Spirit gives us eyes to see past what is humanly impossible. The Spirit gives us eyes to see past the physical and what is possible in the spiritual. And, the, and I'm saying, hold on, the greatest illustration of that is coming. But momentarily, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2, just for a minute. Let's begin it, I believe, at verse 6 is where I want to be. Because it's this wisdom that the Spirit gives us that we need to understand that takes us past all the knowledge we have about this age because we look at this age and we say that's not possible. We look at the way things are going on and say how could God, yeah, we, we, are, we, are like, we are want to do that time and time again and it pushes us out of the spiritual realm to believe in our own abilities and not God's abilities, right? Just like our children do with us as they age. Paul says in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, he says, among the mature we impart some wisdom. Do you see that? This is so important, beloved. Among mature believers, we impart wisdom. See what he says, though? It's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age really understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified Jesus. But it is written, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Beloved, right there. 
Right there is the place where we go past our childlike faith and our doubts in our God and understand that our God can take us past that in the, in, in the knowledge that we see and have in this place. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. The Spirit brings in sight that goes past our physical vision. The Spirit brings in hearing that goes past. And the Spirit brings in into the heart of man more than he could imagine here with the knowledge that he has. Do you see that? The Spirit lifts us up and over our own abilities. And if we pay attention to the Spirit, transforms us to a place where we're going to experience all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. Stay with me. I'm going to illustrate this here. But that's where we're headed. Why? Look at verse 10. Because these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit is limitless on wisdom and knowledge. We are limited. When we place childlike faith in God and we want to go past our own understanding, we need to understand that God knows more than we do. And it's through the Spirit that he opens our spiritual eyes to things that are not physically apparent, our spiritual ears, and our spiritual hearts. Stay with me. Ephesians 4.30. Paul says something very important. It's the turning point here. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? It's at the end of this passage where we're starting this spirit work. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. And that is a command because it's in the, in the, in the Greek, it's in the present active imperative form of the verb. And the imperative form of the verb is always Paul using a command from God. It is, in the broadest sense, the experience of the natural impulse of both man and animals in the pursuit of, of pleasure and delight. Is That is, that we quench the spirit work or grieve the spirit work of God whenever we begin to believe and think in a physical way. God wants to do things in your life. God wants to move the church in a certain direction. But when we bring in worldly things and worldly devices, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And we never reach, we never pass that first level of love, which is a magnificent level, don't get me wrong. But we never surpass that. We're rooted and grounded, but we don't get to the love that surpasses even knowledge. What we see then is what we experience in the world is that Christians who grieve the Spirit or are sorrowful in their experience, they're weak sauce. I don't, this is the bottom of it. I don't want you to be weak sauce. I don't want you to play nice church. I want you to experience all the fullness and the wonderful abilities that God has for you in this place. I said earlier in my prayer, I want you to pursue Christ because the pursuit of Christ and the living in Christ is the pursuit of everything that is true and good and beautiful. I want you to experience all the fullness of God. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 11. Here's where we're going to end today. Hebrews chapter 11. I always say that, right? Hebrews chapter 11. You guys know that if you've been a Bible reader at any time. Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to tell you one story from here. Let's, read, let's begin in verse 1. We've got time. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
What is it the conviction of? Things not seen. Faith is a conviction of things not seen. How are they seen, beloved? By our physical eyes or by our spiritual eyes? And it's in that faith that Christ dwells in your heart, that presence. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, that he spoke it all into existence. So what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Jump with me to verse 7. And all of these here, by faith, we understand. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch. Right? All of these. This is the uh, grand illustration of all the, the men and women of the Bible that had great faith. Verse 7, those where I want to work this morning. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. Do you see how vision, human vision, is at the basis of all of this? By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events not yet seen. In reverent fear, that is faith, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from God. Herein lies our illustration, beloved. This is going to bring it all together for you, I promise. If not, talk to me afterwards. But just stop and think about Noah's childlike faith in adult proportions. Can you hear it now? Noah walks into the room and he says to everybody, I'm going to build a boat. What's wrong with you, Noah? It's never rained before. There's going to be a flood. Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm going to build a boat because it's going to start raining. You starting to see it? Childlike faith, adult proportions. I could do this with any number. I'm going to go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice my son, Abraham said. Boy, somebody needs to take the knife away from Abraham because that guy's not right. Oh, Joshua, what are you doing? Well, we're going to Jericho and we're going to march around that turkey seven times and we're going to shout and we're going to take the whole city just by that. What's wrong with you, Joshua? What's wrong with all these men? It's the same thing that's missing in the church and that is the faith that believes what God says he says he's going to do. Do you see the childlike faith of Noah? Childlike faith, but filled with spirit-filled adult-sized proportions. Now, as Noah feared man, if Noah feared man, what he would do is form a committee and ask them to go into some type of deliberations about this boat. So if the plan failed, it would be everybody's fault, not just Noah's. But Noah feared God before he feared man. He built the boat. He built the boat even all the backlash was there. He built the boat because this is what spiritual eyes give you. Understanding that surpasses knowledge. While the committee is fine for the project of building the boat, don't get me wrong, I'm not destroying committees here this morning. The, the committee works fine for the project of building the boat. They would never have agreed about the concept of the boat because it had to be seen with spiritual eyes. And here's where the fear of man is greater than the fear of God. is where the Holy Spirit is grieved. And I don't want that for you. Don't throttle the Spirit in your life. Not only that, beloved, but here's where we give up going farther. 
I want you, beloved, each of you to know and experience the joy of knowing the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And the only way to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ in your heart and letting go of man-centered, pragmatic dogma and grabbing onto and trusting everything the Heavenly Father who has never not had enough for you. His resources are endless. Grabbing a hold of Him and doing so in faith. Because the greater your faith, the greater his resources, beloved. Amen. What does that look like? 100 years of building that boat. It took him 100 years. That was a lot of gopher wood to build that boat. 100 years of the taunts of unbelievers. 100 years of wondering if his sons and his wife are going to leave him because, you know, that old man, he may not be right. It's been a long time and it's not starting to rain yet. But with each instance of doubt, because it was a spiritual truth, he was strengthened. He was strengthened down deep in the inner man. But isn't the fullness of God yet? We're not quite there. Because one day, Noah looked up and here come all these animals, beloved. Here come all these animals and he put them on that little ark. And the very hand of God began to close that door. And then it began to rain. And it was at that very moment. That very second, that Noah understood all the fullness of God. You see that? You got the illustration. I don't need to talk to you afterwards. I want you to have a childlike faith with adult sized proportions. That's where you experience the fullness of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's where you'll experience all the fullness of the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of Almighty God. That's where it'll be. The relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ in your life is the relentless pursuit of all that is true, good, and beautiful. This is Paul's prayer, beloved, and this is my prayer for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close today, I'm so thankful for the truth of your scriptures and the strength that's found within them. I'm so thankful for the hope we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, if I looked at this world long enough and my experiences dealing with some of the lostness we did yesterday, I would soon become hopeless. But because of your spirit's residence in us, we can have hope that surpasses understanding and knowledge. We can experience all the fullness of what you have for us in this life. And then one day when the rain comes, we see all the fullness of God as we stand face to face with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Our men come that are going to serve.